0: For all of you out there in your boats at dawn or behind the wheel of your big machines on long rides, this is Late Night Canadian Political Philosophy with Scorpio Magoose coming to you from downtown Moncton, Canada. I'm your host, Brian Esparza-Walker, political scientist, doctor of philosophy, citizen of New Brunswick, providing philosophical light for winter nights. What follows is a series of ten episodes on Canadian political philosophy, five on American political philosophy, and five on Chinese philosophy, or at least so is my hope. This first set of ten episodes on Canadian political philosophy is devoted to the very nerdish topic of analyzing the fate of New Brunswick's various official languages acts over the past 50 years and how they've made New Brunswick into the only province in Canada with provincial level bilingualism which is to say a bilingual civil service, separate French and English hospitals and school bus systems, a legal requirement of the government to translate all debates into French before publishing them and so on. So. I want to look at those local level changes against the broader changes in North American intellectual life over the past 50 years or so, which I saw from a ringside seat because for much of that time I was a professional political scientist, which is my training, and in the early years of my career, I'm 60 now, I moved a lot from city to city for my studies so that I experienced the various Canadian-French-English constitutional crises of the 1980s and 1990s up close and from a ringside seat. First in in New Brunswick, where I grew up, I'm from an English-speaking household in St. John. Then I went to Ottawa to study political science at Carleton, then to Montreal and uh, studied there, did a master's degree in political science under the great Charles Taylor in the 1980s. And always in my social life, I was surrounded by passionate Quebec and Acadian nationalists. And in fact, I considered myself part of them when I was younger, because I went to high school with Acadian stickers on my notebooks, and uh, uh, came from a family with a couple of uh, Acadian grandparents. And so I started out as a passionate Acadian nationalist, and then after a decade in Quebec, considerably changed many of my points of view and this podcast, is, in some sense comes out of that kind of shift in perspective. I served for a couple of decades as a tenured professor at the University of California in Los Angeles, but like a lot of people of my race and gender, my career was kind of mangled by the woke wars and the wave of ideological militancy that hit Los Angeles so hard in the 2000s and after as a white boy professor whose prior decade in Quebec had left me somewhat cynical about ethnic claims. I couldn't really support the post-2000s shift to make wokeness the focus of campus culture, and so I became an object for struggle, and I felt by days numbered, so I ended my career way too early and fled with my tail between my legs back home to lick my wounds here in Acadian, New Brunswick. Now that I'm back in French Canada, I see with new eyes the politics here because of such extensive and lengthy immersion in black and Latino politics eh, on campus and in California more generally. Also, before I had left Canada, I had not yet spent the long years I did teaching American political history and American, the history of American political philosophy I taught two classes, one American kind of Puritans uh, from 1620s through to the Civil War, and then another from the Civil War through to the 1890s and the Jim Crow regime and the Civil Rights Movement, on until the neoconservatism and Reaganism of the 1980s and 1990s. And those 20 years of teaching gave me a, a very different perspective on what was happening here in Acadia, and I guess to some extent that led me to launch into this podcast. New Brunswick is currently undergoing a legally mandated review of the 2002 Official Languages Act that significantly beefed up the requirements of bilingualism. Like, Most governmental processes in New Brunswick, the whole review process is cloaked in secrecy, it isn't really a uh, public review as it's supposed to be, and the Acadians of New Brunswick have 21 representative groups that are publicly funded that are speaking out in their voice without any real voice for English New Brunswick, so it's not really quite a fair review process, and so I thought I would tried to do a bit of a public service by attempting to present a balanced, evidence-based, reason-based, emotionality-avoiding, critical study of the Akkadian rights movement that would take both Akkadian ideology seriously but also the criticisms of Akkadian ideology seriously. I see this as breaking new ground theoretically because normally, most of the studies of these issues have been from the point of view of Acadians and French rights maximalists. So, attempting a balanced perspective, where I don't just talk about the 25% of the population that benefits from bilingualism, but also about the other 75% of the population, I think that that's uh, c'est de la nouveauté ça. There's some new stuff there. So one of the services that i hope to provide is just translating french documents to english people who maybe don't understand very much about acadian ideology because they don't read french as i do so a big part of what i'm going to be doing here is simply finding some representative examples from within acadian literature of what the acadian rights maximization ideology consists of so I want to translate, summarize, boil down Acadian ideology for the purpose of non-French-speaking New Brunswickers, so that when the final report comes from this uh, legally mandated review of the 2002 Official Languages Act that's going on right now, they'll have some context for understanding it. So. What I'll be doing over the next 10 episodes is laying out all the main kind of avenues uh, of Acadian discourse, summarizing books such as Michel Roy's L'Acadie perdue or Leon Therio's La question de pouvoir en Acadie. I'm particularly influenced by the superb Acadian political scientist Donald Savoy at the University of Moncton and his many brilliant books discussing the dissolution of Canada's democratic institutions since the 1980s. So, much of what I'll be doing here is just taking Acadian political ideology really seriously. So, for example, in these first few episodes, I'll be talking a lot about social contract, but that's because Acadians talk a lot about social contract. I'll also be talking a lot about the idea of cultural equality, but that's not an idea i have pulled of thin air. It's a major political value and a major legal value now because it was enshrined as a kind of central New Brunswick goal by the Acadian activist Supreme Court Judge Michel Bastrache because half of the organizations promoting French rights maximalism in New Brunswick have the word equality in their name. So in this podcast, I'm going to play Scorpio Magoos, public explainer, humble servant of Mercury, translating Akkadian ideology to the English who live in a legal system infused with Akkadian ideas and ideology, and then translating, for the benefit of my Akkadian listeners, qualms that non-beneficiaries of the bilingual system have about the bilingual system, passing messages Intercultural translation, whatever you want to call it, the goal is to encourage more dialogue, more thinking, a weighing of arguments and of alternatives, and also calling out partisan speciousness and baffle gab. Scorpio Magoose, sad clown witnessing the provincial bilingualism regime, philosophical court jester at the heart of Acadian New Brunswick, self-appointed provincial riddler scrambling around, sticking question marks on things that maybe people take for granted a bit too easily. Perhaps the best way to start talking about bilingualism is to survey the mainstream, quote-unquote, progressive position on the Acadian cause, and for that, the journalist Graham Fraser's deft and human interest-filled book from 2006, Sorry I Don't Speak French, strikes me as a great representative text because it matches point for point the primary arguments I hear in support of official bilingualism from friends and associates who see themselves as progressives. Fraser's book is mostly about the reactions of federal civil servants and workers in the Ottawa and Montreal regions to the advent of federal-level bilingualism. In this podcast, I am 100% focused on New Brunswick. Fraser's a great guide, though, to the broader picture. He makes his own sympathies very clear early on. Fraser's book was clearly written as a wake-up call for people who haven't yet learned that if English Canadians really want to go on making up a country with French Canadians, that they'd better start paying attention to French demands for equal treatment and for equal presence in the country vis-à-vis the English. Above all, Fraser argues it's high time that English Canadians in Ottawa and Fredericton and Moncton and Manitoba and the rest of the country start to show themselves more serious about learning French and about adapting to the fact that upper-level public administration positions in Canada are primarily for those who can serve in both languages, not just one. Fraser implies strongly that it's a kind of a national shame that more English people are not enthusiastic about learning French and getting on board with our most distinctive national project. Why don't the English recognize what a great personal asset it is to master Canada's other official languages and recognizing that through learning French one joins the class of Canadian families that get a crack at the top public service jobs, it's in everybody's self-interest to learn French, not to mention absolutely required if we don't want to see the country broken up by French separatists. Fraser reminds his readers that English people often forget how painful it is to suffer the demographic domination of being a minority, like the French in New Brunswick, for example. They don't take seriously enough the advantages that English people receive just through speaking the majority language of the North American continent, whereas the French face an uphill climb getting services in their language under such circumstances. So, for Fraser, learning French and cooperating with the advancement of official bilingualism programs is a way for English people to help the French make up for the evils of this domination. But that social contract will only work if the English keep up their side of things by learning French and by helping the French fund organizations that will help them feel safe and secure in North America despite the demographic domination that they suffer. So, the English should pull their socks up, rub the sleep of their eyes, wake up and smell the coffee, which is to say, recognize the ramifications of French tenacity and zealousness demanding service uh, in their language. Fraser captures the somewhat scolding tone present in much of the discourse on the topic of English Canadian reactions to bilingualism. There seems to be a consensus among Canadians who describe themselves as progressives that English foot dragging on bilingualism is a moral problem and at some level a national shame. So I think it's a great way of capturing the progressive line, or the the so-called progressive line, on bilingualism. Most French Canadians I've met talk along similar lines. Now, I don't see the Acadian rights movement in theory or practice a progressive movement. I see it rather as conservative, as attempting to maintain an unequal status quo, uh, and in some ways motivated by a typical 1980s era kind of race-war model, winner-takes-all model of society. And that in the course of the 1970s and the 1980s, the Acadian rights movement shifted from being a movement that was just about the recognition of French rights, which is, to my mind, an entirely good thing, to become a movement aimed at maximizing the yield of French rights, Uh, even if that takes away from the rights of other groups. So the way bilingualism has worked out over the past 50 years has all been in the name of cultural equality, but the resulting regime, state of affairs on the ground, is anything but equal, showing rather a disproportionate public funding for French-speaking institutions over English-speaking ones. So, this podcast is built up around a walk around Moncton, and I devote 10 episodes to 10 different Acadian cultural institutions in the city of Moncton, not a single one of which has any equivalent for non French speakers. So, for example, in this episode, I'll start my tour, my virtual tour, with a visit to the AJEFNB, the uh, association des Juristes d'expression français de Nouveau-Brunswick, which is an association of francophone lawyers, judges, and law professors devoted to promoting French rights. In my next episode, I'll be talking about the ubiquity of the Acadian flag compared to any other flag. In other episodes, I'll be talking about the Aberdeen Centre or the Place de la Cathédrale, the publicly subsidized Acadian nationalist office building on St. George Street in downtown Moncton. Ten episodes, ten institutions of what I'll call super-representation. Organizations that represent the French voice, but the English don't have any equivalent to. So it's a form of extra-representation that the French have, that the English do not have. Even though the Canadian Constitution tells us that we're supposed to be promoting cultural equality in the province of New Brunswick, in reality, New Brunswick seems to me a textbook case of cultural inequality, as is clearly and I think incontestably evidenced in land use patterns and cultural funding patterns in the supposedly bilingual city of Moncton. It's perhaps worth mentioning that I am aware that my focus on both French-English issues and the ideologies of the 1970s uh, and 80s might seem to some to be problematically old-fashioned by focusing so much on the French and English when there are so many New Brunswickers now who grew up speaking Punjabi or Tagalog or... Putonghua, Mandarin Chinese, and for whom full equality and social mobility in New Brunswick means learning two new languages. In other words, all this focus on French and English might seem to some to be very old Canadian, quite undiverse, not properly recognizant of the many new immigrants for whom neither French nor English is the mother tongue, and from their point of view. All this stuff I'm talking about here might seem like old-school name-calling, squabbling about ancient history, les niaiseries de souche, as you might say in French, kind of stump-side squabbling, I guess you'd translate that as. And a similar fatigue might be felt about all the talk I'm going to have to make about the ideologies of the 60s and 70s and 80s. Mais 68 encore? Mais quelle horreur! Same thing goes in the United States. Okay, boomer, enough already, please. We in Canada, though, don't really have the luxury other countries have that allows them to distance themselves from the political ideologies of the 1960s and 1970s since the ideologies of those decades were the intellectual seedbed of the modern Canadian constitution by which I mean the 1983 Constitution, which set up so much of the foundations of the modern New Brunswick regime of official bilingualism. For 21st century Canadians, ignoring the 1970s and 1960s would be a way of forgetting the documents and debates out of which the modern Canadian Constitution was formed. And that was all about a French-English thing, or a French-English indigenous thing, to put it more accurately. The 1983 Constitution Act was created by group rights-focused politicians, lawyers, and academics, and the law they produced is focused on particular historical linguistic communities, particularly the French and English, privileging them over all others as objects for public concern. So, Just because the policy compromises of the 1960s and 1970s were written into the foundational law of Canada and became forever law, we don't really have an opportunity or a luxury of ignoring them. Once Acadian rights maximization was firmly established in New Brunswick law, any questioning of the policies of official bilingualism in New Brunswick might be construed as an attack on the legal rights of francophones, so that it became no longer legitimate to criticize official language policy after the 1983 Constitution Act, since to do so was to open oneself up to the charge of being racist or hateful, an agent of misinformation who doesn't really understand modern Canadian law. So we, in some sense, are forced to talk about all these things. The proximate cause and occasion for launching this podcast is to answer the call of Cédric Doucette from the Acadian Nationalist Organization, the Société Nationale des Acadiens de Nouveau-Brunswick, or SNAB. Doucette's been reported a number of times on the CBC as calling out for more English people to speak out about bilingualism. He thinks that quite a lot of French speakers support bilingualism. And I agree that a lot of people who think of themselves as progressives adopt a pro-bilingualism, a kind of attitude just on principle. And there's also a class in New Brunswick of mostly well-off families who've been able to get their children through the province's French immersion program, thus giving them a crack at the top class jobs in the provincial civil service. And those people, too, have a strong interest in preserving the bilingualism regime as it currently stands. Overall, though, I think that those who believe that there's a silent majority out there that supports bilingualism are just not right. And the question I would pose to Snob uh, and Cedric Doucet and other representatives of his kind of position is, without a referendum, How do you know that you have consent for your programs rather than just a kind of forced submission, a kind of a cowed submission, especially in a system where Acadians benefit from a vast amount of self-representation institutions like Snob? There's no equivalent to that in English New Brunswick. How can you believe that you've not just intimidated the other side into silence and that you're mistaking that for consent. Without an actual referendum on the current bilingualism regime, there's really no way of knowing what the average New Brunswick citizen thinks of the regime. So in other words, I think consent is a big issue in New Brunswick. Consent and the lack thereof, or at least lack of proof of consent, now, if there were a referendum on bilingualism in a few years' time and it was a fair referendum and it wasn't just Acadians who had representation, self-representation organizations but the English also had them uh, and the debate went on in, in, under more fair conditions than the current so-called review of official bilingualism and if that came out with a yes on the regime of official bilingualism, that would indeed be a form of consent, but you have nothing like that. As long as the French have 21 publicly funded groups voicing their concerns and the English are systematically underrepresented, the background conditions are so unfair that the laws, a referendum, and also the current public review process they're not really democratically legitimate in any way. So I'm encouraging French New Brunswickers to take seriously that for their regime to be legitimate and to be at the focus of a social contract, the yes given must be clear and clearly uncoerced. It's In current conditions, it's hard to tell what people think because the voice of French self-interest is represented by the equivalent of a hundred-piece symphony orchestra and the English New Brunswick by a tiny kazoo. Uh, the word, the formulation that the English have been cowed into silence or have been kind of forced to kind of check out because of the power of the Akkadian machine might seem a strong formulation, but groups that Uh, benefit from a system often don't realize their own power, and groups who benefit from a system learn how to label criticism as hate so that they can shut criticism down, and groups that don't want their advantages questioned have an interest in cultivating and indulging their darker emotions such as outrage and hysteria so as not to face questioning. We've seen a very uh, plain example of that uh, recently in the Acadian national reaction to the news that a bilingualism skeptic, Chris Allen, was to be named to a provincial panel discussing language laws. Hysteria is the only term strong enough to de- describe the state of emotional upset one saw in the editorial writers of L'Acadie Nouvelle or Le Moniteur Acadien in the fall of 2002 where French writers talked about a new genocide of the Acadians, a second grand dérangement, a second great deportation. Any student of ethnic populism sees this as a classic move where you stir up fear and outrage through exaggerating the existential threats to your people, as Bolsonaro does in Brazil, or Trump in the U.S., or Netanyahu in Israel. All of them kind of portray an existential threat around every corner. But what does it say about Akkadian nationalism, that Acadians get so extremely outraged when there is the slightest hint that another group might start to behave as they do. Doesn't the golden rule state us, tell us that we shouldn't do things that we wouldn't like other people to do to us? If it's so great to make the promotion of group rights into your sole cultural focus, then why do you react so strongly when other people do the same thing? What does it say about the Akkadian social movement? If Acadians find it heinous, when other groups act like they might behave as they do? How would Acadians like it if English people first passed laws that shrunk Acadian life chances and prevented them from participating at the upper levels of their own provincial civil service and then didn't even allow them to speak about it? What does horror about the Council of Regions, for example, the old social movement from the 80s and 90s, for English rights, which never really got anywhere, but is still a bogeyman for the Acadians. What does horror about CORE say about SNAB or the uh, Association des Juristes d'Expression Francaise de Nouveau-Brunswick? Interesting that New Brunswick receives the ministrations of two separate official languages commissioners, one at the federal level and the other at the provincial level. These are... Bureaucratic offices and auditing forces that are ostensibly devoted to the promotion of cultural equality among Canada's historic linguistic communities. But in practice, there's a slightly Alice in Wonderland quality about how it all plays itself out. So, for example, if you look at the official website of the current uh, a language commissioner at the federal level, Jeanette Petitpas Taylor, she justifies her funding for twenty-one Acadian nationalist organizations on the grounds that, as a member of Parliament from Moncton, she well understands the role of organizations such as Cédric Dusset's Snob and the Circle of French Young People and Acadian book fairs and so on. How important that is to the cultural. Dynamism of French Moncton. No mention of the cultural needs of anybody else in New Brunswick, and no promise of equivalent funding for political organizations for non French speakers that might balance out the influence of those subsidized for the benefit of French speakers. If official languages commissioners were actually concerned with cultural equality in New Brunswick or in Canada as a whole, then the very obvious funding disparity between French and non-French Moncton would be a great concern to them. My back-of-an-envelope-style guesstimate of the ratio of spending for French cultural infrastructure in Moncton compared to English cultural infrastructure in Moncton would be about 9 to 1, actually. It's far from the 50-50 parity and service provision that's supposed to be the goal under cultural equality. The fact that official bilingual commissioners at the federal and provincial levels have never really had any problem with this sort of thing shows that they're most realistically categorized as French rights maximalists, promoting the maximum yield possible in terms of services to French speakers, so that Bilingual commissioners, who are supposed to be agents of equality, actually operate as agents of cultural inequality, and the office operates as an extra-representative institution for a community that is already super-represented. So I'm going to talk a lot in this podcast about political surrealism and misleading language use, and This is the sort of thing I'm talking about, the idea that the agents of inequality, such as the official languages commissioners, talk all the time about what they're doing for the cause of cultural equality, all the while either standing by, uh, complacent and thus complicit with the 9-to-1 funding that spending for French cultural infrastructure compared to English cultural infrastructure, they either stand by complacent or even help out the French by giving them extra servings. This is a podcast in some ways, then, about political surrealism, about preposterous references to a social contract around bilingualism or about commitment to to norms of cultural equality. Wonderful on paper, in reality the opposite is going on so that partisan language acts like a magician's illusionism, an architecture of misdirection. Politicians, and every ideologist is a sort of politician, deceive, not necessarily lie, but they exaggerate things or select so carefully that they create a strange counterfactual reality. Two of the philosophers that I'm going to be looking at most closely in this first series of episodes are uh, both associated with ideas of absurdity and surrealism. Hannah Arendt in The Origins of Totalitarianism wrote about the way partisan ideology and racial ideology creates bizarre alternative realities which make no sense, but which people are forced to go along with anyways so that ordinary people see how strange things are and they kind of check out, go into some kind of internal exile from their own political system, they become cynical and disengaged and uh, in some sense disenfranchised. Cedric Doucette and others who think that there's some sort of silent majority in New Brunswick who actually approves of the official bilingualism regime I think, should take that possibility a lot more seriously than they do. If you read a bit in Akkadian ideology and in the jurisprudence of Acadian activist judges like Michel Bastarache, it becomes clear that there's a certain logic behind the official languages commissioner as bureaucrat in charge of equalization, superfunding one group, and underfunding the other. The justification that Acadians give in self-defense when challenged on funding disparities in their favor invariably revolves around talking about shrinking population numbers among Acadians, the shrinking percentage of homes in New Brunswick where French is spoken. The argument is the French in New Brunswick face an uphill climb, and so... Extra resources are needed to help them out. Just because Acadian population numbers are so low, they need disproportionate amounts of public funding for infrastructure, for self-protection, for cultural support, so that giving them extra is like creating balance in the system by boosting up its weak part. To achieve equality, one sometimes has to overcompensate a bit. Again, the English majority should not forget how easy and privileged their life is because they have such large numbers. So, for example, if you read Judge Michel Bastarache's Defense of Minority Rights in his various essays and Legal Decisions and in his judgment in the key case Crown v. Bolak, 1999, this kind of argument is very, very uh, powerful there. But this line of argument seems to me completely misleading, because in New Brunswick, French people make up a well-organized ethnic sub with a lot of amazing infrastructure inherited from the Acadian nationalist priests of the 1880s and the 1890s. French in New Brunswick see themselves bound together as a people with an epic national destiny, whereas The English of New Brunswick aren't really an ethnic group. It's just a language. A bunch of different ethnicities speak together. They have no cultural infrastructure whatsoever, no organizations of self-representation to speak of. And I think the worry in that kind of system, the system that we actually have, is not that the majority will tyrannize over the minority, but rather that the minority will tyrannize over the majority. By giving an already super-represented, ethnically connected, and infrastructurally rich community ever more funding, the past 50 years of super-funding for French causes makes an already undemocratic situation even more unfair and unequal. This is why the legal reasoning behind granting Acadians super-funding so as to make up for their minority status is very unconvincing. I think there's actually a deeper reason why uh, Acadians think that cultural inequality in capital expenditure and culture infrastructure funding is all right and just. And that's the idea that Acadia, Acadia forward slash New Brunswick Really belongs to Acadians and re- Aboriginal peoples, whereas everybody else is settled here as part of the English agenda to suppress the presence of the French in North America. The Acadians see themselves in the Mi'kmaq and the Wallistoqui as the first families of New Brunswick with everyone else as settlers and as descendants of the first family the indigenous and the acadians deserve extra privileges and extra representational infrastructure i think this accounts for the somewhat extraordinary local obsession with genealogy and even more bizarrely with heraldry and crests and shields and coats of arms and things i'll discuss in a later episode how frequently I'm told that my Acadian grandfather, Gerard Pinault, could not have been a real Acadian because Pinault is not a real Acadian name like Cormier or Leblanc or Doucette or Petitpas. I think the reason genealogy is so important is that a membership in the ethnic community made up of Acadians allows one to consider self oneself among the real owners of the land, as a real Acadian living in Acadia, whereas the English here are just the descendants of the English exploiters who tried to get the Acadians out. This might be the, the point to uh, emphasize that I understand all of this very well because I used to look at the world that way myself. Uh, I have in front of me on the desk as I speak my high school notebook, and I'm a bit of a pack rat, I'll admit. Uh, on the back of it, I have a little rectangular Acadian flag stuck on with its bleu, blanc, rouge colors blue, white, and red, like the French tricolor, though with the addition in the upper left hand corner of a little yellow star. Uh, Uh, I come from an English-speaking household, but thanks to the teaching of the great Dr. Doherty at St. Malachy's High School in St. John, I started learning French in high school and developed a great love of the language. And as a teen in the mid-1970s, I was very inspired by the Acadian and Quebecois nationalist causes, and I read Michel Tremblay plays and Marie-Claire Blais novels to practice my French, and I sang along with nationalist singers like Diane Dufresne and Beausoleil Broussard and the rock group Harmonium, and in generally I was a enthusiastic uh, kind of supporter of the francophone cultural renaissance of the early 70s, which I found spellbindingly charismatic. Part of that's because I have two Acadian grandparents and I kind of wanted to own that, but partly it's also just because I very quickly came to love French culture and uh, have read uh, enormous numbers of French novels and French poetry in the years since. I'm stressing both my Acadian background and my Francophilia because I think that it's often uh, anyone who criticizes bilingualism in New Brunswick is often dismissed as being uh, someone who hates the French, that it's a form of racism. I find that very unfair, but I think it's nonetheless prudent for me to stress the fact that much of what I'm going to be doing in this podcast is using French writers from France, such as Jean-Jacques Rousseau or Albert Camus, to talk about things that are going on in New Brunswick. That isn't as far-fetched as you might think at first. The Acadian flag, the French tricolor, the blue-white-red flag, is, came to be the French flag in the French Revolution, and it was seen as representing the spirit of civic equality that Jean-Jacques Rousseau had been calling for the French Revolution as most people know, was very much inspired by Rousseau's writing. And that's one of the enormous ironies of New Brunswick politics, which is that what is flown in France as a democratic and republican flag that's all about all the taxpayers of France being in one big community where they're all exactly the same and treated by the law in exactly the same way, Flying the French flag in New Brunswick has pretty much the opposite effect because what you're saying is that your real brothers and sisters are not your fellow taxpayers in New Brunswick who are kind of paying for your, your bilingual services. Your real civic brothers and sisters are other French people in Montreal or Lille or Senegal or Algeria or wherever. The Social contract flag is flown in New Brunswick as a flag of ethnic communitarianism and ethnic factionalism, things that real social contract thinkers have always found completely abhorrent. So the way people in New Brunswick talk about social contract makes it clear that they've either never understood properly what a social contract really requires in practice, or they've understood it and they pretend they don't and just use the word because it serves a useful purpose in ideological warfare, because you can say there's a social contract around bilingualism, and how dare you break it. Some think that there is a social contract in New Brunswick because... The Acadians back in the 1970s and 1980s were threatening to separate uh, or seek annexation to an independentist Quebec. And they stood down from that uh, and they didn't go through with that. And uh, the payback for that is that English New Brunswickers sign on to a social contract on bilingualism. It's a kind of their part of the bargain. But signing a contract with people because they threaten to go to war with you, otherwise a kind of a secession movement is a type of civil war, that's not a social contract. Uh, It's a kind of a contract, but it has nothing at all to do with the kind of social contract of mutual aid that Jean-Jacques Rousseau and other social contract thinkers were talking about. A social contract creates a community where everybody looks out for everybody else and thinks in terms of their mutual and common well-being. The two-solitudes model of New Brunswick bilingualism is not anything like that at all. It's a contract where if the Mongols uh, threaten to sack your village if you don't pay them yearly tribute, the, the resulting contract with them is not a social contract because it's still basically warlike in that it tries to squeeze maximum Profit out of an inherent power advantage, more or less the exact opposite of what Jean Jacques Rousseau, the founder of social contract theory, meant by the idea. So this podcast then uses French political theory from France to correct French political thinking in New Brunswick using the democratic small r. Republican social contract theory of Jean-Jacques Rousseau to call out and complain about the neo-aristocratic and anti-Republican tendencies of the operation of the New Brunswick Official Languages Act over the past 50 years. Moi, je suis calé dans la grande tradition philosophique rationaliste de France et de Genève, Stendhal, Montaigne, de Tocqueville, Montesquieu, Michel Foucault, Pierre Hadot, etc. But I'm very much grounded in the French philosophical realist tradition. Blaise Pascal, Stendhal, de Tocqueville is one of my great heroes. Michel Foucault is one of my great heroes. But in this podcast, I'll be talking most at first here about Jean-Jacques Rousseau and The 19th century model of civic egalitarianism, the idea of civic fraternity and sorority, uh, which was the central idea that the French Revolution popularized, which also inspired in the United States Thomas Jefferson and through Jefferson the Jacksonians and Abraham Lincoln and eventually John Rawls and other modern kind of uh, versions of the social contract tradition. Let me start my little tour of the institutions of Acadian super representation and super funding in New Brunswick by uh, talking a little bit about uh, my recent attendance as a protester at a meeting in the basement of the University of Moncton Law School of the Association of of French-speaking jurists of New Brunswick, the Association des Juristes d'Expression Français de New Brunswick, a group of law school professors, law students, past and future judges, all dedicated to the promotion of French rights in New Brunswick. My protest, which was very polite, consisted of handing around a folded-up piece of paper on which I'd printed Three questions in both languages, of course. Uh, they're, they're questions about the fairness of the linguistic rights regime in New Brunswick, and uh, I think they're, in some ways, the central question that I'm going to be pursuing in the first ten episodes of this podcast. First question, how are organizations, such as an association of Francophone jurists, compatible with the right of non-Acadians, to be tried before politically independent judges and before impartial tribunals. Second question, where is the equivalent to this organization for non-Acadians? Where is a group rights promoting legal association for English people in New Brunswick? If such an equivalent to this association does not exist, then how is that state of affairs compatible with the norm of cultural equality and governmental promotion of equal flourishing for the two communities, the value in the name of which Acadians have been fighting for the past 50 years. In other words, is cultural equality as a public norm in New Brunswick meant only to benefit the Acadian community, or can other communities in New Brunswick call upon this public norm of cultural equality. And finally, the third question. Associations such as the Association of French-speaking Jurists and many others like it give Acadians in New Brunswick super-representation, heavily subsidized from public monies. In New Brunswick, only Indigenous people and Acadians get this sort of super-representation. But how is that state of affairs compatible with the basic democratic principle of no taxation without representation? Aren't everybody else in New Brunswick, all the other people in New Brunswick, systematically underrepresented? And isn't an association like the Association of French-speaking Jurists best seen as having created a kind of aristocracy because French speakers in New Brunswick have an aristocracy level of funding and super-representation at the expense of everybody else in the ostensibly democratic New Brunswick civic body. Those are kind of core questions for me. It seems to me that if you have a group of lawyers and judges and potential future judges organized in a French rights promoting political association That's a type of political party. There's no question about that. And yet, we're supposed to have a right to a politically independent judiciary. It doesn't seem to be compatible with the norm of a politically independent system of tribunals and law courts and administrative review panels to have just the French joined together in a, a French rights maximalist political organization. Certainly, Acadians would very much be up in arms if English justices belonged to an English rights organization. Just look at their reaction to the seating of a single uh, skeptic about bilingualism on a review panel. Note also uh, something I didn't mention in the questions, which is that the association of French-speaking jurists having uh, a free a meeting place in a public university like the University of Moncton, which is not a private university paid for by Acadians, but a public university paid for by everybody, but only serving Acadians. Anyone who's ever tried to book a room for a political meeting will understand how helpful it is for the Association of Francophone Jurists to be able to use the university law school as a free meeting place for their activist organization. If an Anglophone rights group wanted to get together in Moncton, they'd have to look around to find a place where they could book a hall, and even Superstore would probably not rent a space to a group rights-promoting organization for Anglophones. So, in New Brunswick, the supposed land of cultural equality, how can there be parity in service provision if there are, again, a rough back of an envelope, guesstimate, ninety-nine. I think there are probably about 99 publicly subsidized French rights defenders for every single publicly subsidized English right defender. That, and that's a conservative estimate. How can that possibly be seen as fair, as social justice, and how can it be seen as compatible with our New Brunswick public norm of cultural equality? This is all much more important now than it was, say, thirty years ago, because a whole series of court cases, such as Tudor of Solsky v. Attorney General of Quebec, Doucet Boudreau v. Minister of Education of Nova Scotia, not to mention the the core case Crown v. Bolak, nineteen ninety nine, that I'll be talking about a lot in upcoming episodes. These have really Boosted the idea that we're supposed to be living under laws that guarantee cultural equality. The fact that there is super funding and super representation for 25% of the population, while no equivalent culture or political infrastructure is available for the other 75% of the population, that seems to me not at all kosher under the prioritization given the norm of cultural equality in post Bolac jurisprudence. In the year 2023, aren't we supposed to be living in a democratic era and under provincial laws that guarantee cultural equality? How then can you justify the hypersegregation and unequal facilities and general Plessy versus Ferguson era Jim Crow level of inequality that we find in New Brunswick it's not just morally problematic anymore. Now it also seems to be constitutionally problematic, constitutionally forbidden, in fact. Shouldn't Acadian superfunding and superrepresentation be illegal given the elevation in New Brunswick of norms requiring the equal treatment of the major historic cultural and linguistic communities of the province? That's probably enough provocative statements for one episode, so maybe I'll wrap up now. In my next episode, I plan to zoom out a bit uh, and do a crow's-eye view over Akkadian history, five or ten minutes of Acadian History 101 before I uh, delve into the extraordinary role played in the crystallization of Acadian nationalism by the American poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's 1847 poem, Evangeline, A Tale of Acadie, uh, which to this day serves as a kind of dominant mythology framing New Brunswick linguistic politics. In the next episode, I'll also talk about another institution of Akkadian super-representation, which is the ubiquitously flying Akkadian flag, which one sees several dozen of for every one that one sees from any other ethnic groups, including often on public flagpoles, where the Akkadian ethnicity is recognized twice, once through the provincial flag, which is their flag too, and then a second time through their ethnic flag. So, the kind of the double representation of Acadians for me is both very symbolic and also evidence of what I'm calling their super-representation. If you found this interesting, I hope you'll come back for another episode. I've also posted some bilingualism-flavored animations on YouTube with excerpts from this podcast. And once a month on Patreon, I'll be posting a question-and-answer-style podcast summarizing and responding to the most interesting feedback I've gotten that people leave on the comments board on YouTube. So if you want to correct any of the errors of sense or sensibility or historical fact uh, that you find in my podcast, please leave me a message on the YouTube comments board. I'm working on a book on this subject and I certainly want it to be fair uh, and not to be Gaston Lagaffe and have all sorts of uh, problematic statements in it. So thanks for checking in. I've been your host, Brian Esparza-Walker, and I hope you'll come back to join me again for another helping of tasty mind snacks from the philosophical steam tables and tidy intellectual cupboards of late-night Canadian political philosophy with Scorpio Magus.